Hey, what's up, podcasters? This is Dave Clayton here with Ethos Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And I want to take just a moment to remind you that there are some changes that are going on with our podcast. As our online family continues to grow, we found that it's sometimes challenging to find the teachings that you're looking for. And so just a reminder that we have broken our podcast into three unique podcasts. And so this podcast that you're listening to will continue to be the podcast for our Cannery family in downtown Nashville. But if you want to find specific teachings from Ethos Church Marathon or Ethos Church Hillsborough Village, you can search for both of those in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or you can find all of our teachings online at ethoschurch.org forward slash grow. So glad that you join in with us each week. You open up the Word of God, and I hope you enjoy this teaching from God's Word. So, you know, tonight as we jump into this conversation uh, about what it means to relate to God and, and what it means to really just kind of live out the Lord's Prayer, I just want to preface it this way. You know, anytime that Sydney and I sit down to try to mentor somebody in the ways of Jesus, this conversation that we're having tonight is typically one of the first conversations that we have. And when we're, when we're having it one-on-one or we're, when we're having it in a small group of people, we're typically sitting at a coffee table and we get out something to draw with and we literally take an hour and a half or two hours to talk them through the conversation that we're gonna try to have in 30 minutes together. And then after that, we take the next three or four weeks to just kind of unpack what God is doing in their life. And so I just want you to hear this on the front end. In no way is our short amount of time tonight around this conversation gonna be sufficient. And I understand just kind of from the outset that this is in no way the final word in the conversation. Hopefully you'll just kind of see it as the first word that will maybe get you started, that'll kind of get you in small groups or in house churches or in communities, kind of unpacking this a little bit further. And if you have any questions, I'd love to to connect or get you with people on our pastoral team to help you do that because I believe if we really wanna walk out the ways of Jesus, the conversation that we're having tonight is really, really significant. Remember uh, years ago, I had the joy of meeting this incredible family uh, they were moving their oldest son into college. He, they're not from Nashville. He just moved up here for school. And I, I met them as they were moving him into the dorms and just had this incredible conversation. And in the context of just a few minutes, I realized that they were a really significantly um, uh, spirit-filled family. It's just like one of those moments where I thought, man, God, I cannot believe you've allowed my path to cross with them. And they started telling me their, their story. And it was amazing because this husband and wife, they had three biological kids. And two years earlier... When their oldest son, who was getting ready to move into the dorm that day, when their oldest son was a junior in high school, he came home from school one day and he said, Mom and Dad, I met this new kid. He just moved here. He's not from the area. And I think we're going to be best friends, which is, which is really kind of cool. You know, a lot of times juniors in high school, you know, like aren't, aren't that unchained. You know, they're typically not just that out front with their emotions. But he comes home and he's like, I just met a new best friend. This guy's amazing. And he started just kind of telling the story about this guy that he had met because in every way on the surface, they couldn't have been more different. They didn't look alike, they didn't talk alike, they didn't come from the same kind of neighborhood. In fact, uh, this kid that had just moved into the school that had met the oldest son of this family that I'm now friends with, this kid that he just met came from a really tough upbringing, didn't really know his biological family, spent most of his childhood being passed between distant relatives and friends and through the foster system and really lived a, a pretty challenging life. But in spite of all of it, he became this unbelievably solid young man of God. And so he he comes into this school and he meets the oldest son of this family that's now become one of my good friends. And just like overnight, they became like best friends. I don't know if you've ever had a friend like that. You know, just the moment you met them, it's like friendship at first sight, just boom. They were kind of connected at the hip. And over the next several months, they just started hanging out together and it became really clear, 
not just to these two high school juniors, but to everyone around them that God was bringing this friendship together. And over the course of about six or seven months, this couple was looking at this young man and they thought, okay, we think there's more here. We think this guy is more than just our son's friend. We think he's more than just a guy that we're supposed to invest in and love and serve and care. We think that maybe this guy is supposed to become a part of our family. So this kid was 17 years old at the time, and they, they sit down with him, and they say, hey, we just want to lay it all on the table. We're glad that you're friends with our son. We're glad that you show up and stay at our house on the weekends and eat our food and go on vacation with us and do all these things, but we'd really like to propose something more than that. We would love to be your parents, and we'd love, like, if you're down with it, we'd love to, like, legally adopt you, and this guy was like, what in the world is going on, and he didn't even know if it's possible for a 17-year-old to be legally adopted, but they, they checked it out, and so uh, about a year later, halfway through his senior year, they legally adopt this kid right before he turns 18 years old, and there's just this beautiful moment where they sat down and said, hey, here's the deal. Uh, we want you to know that you're no longer an outsider. You're no longer a visitor. You're no longer just a friend of our family. You're one of our sons. And we're going to pay to send you to college. One day, if you get married, we want to help pay for your wedding. We want to be there whenever you have kids. We want to grow old together. Like, we want you to know, like, you're all the way in, in the context of the family. And it's just like when I was sitting here listening to this story as they were moving their son into the dorm, I thought, man, this is one of the most unique and beautiful pictures of the gospel that I've ever seen. Because in this kid, I just saw my story and your story and the story of the church, this reality that at one point we were all distant, we were all living as spiritual orphans, we're all kind of drifting, and yet because of our friendship with the oldest son, the firstborn son of heaven, Jesus himself, we get brought into the family. We didn't come in as visitors, we didn't come in as outsiders, we didn't come in to crash on the couch. We came in literally as sons and daughters of the most generous king. And I remember having the conversation with the parents right after they had adopted this guy. And I said, out of all the challenges you've had to overcome, what's been the most significant challenge with adopting a 17-year-old? And they said, it's easy. It's been so hard for us to help him understand that he's actually our son. Because his whole life, his whole life, he's seen himself as an outsider, as a visitor, as a project, as a friend but we're having to teach him what it looks like to actually live as a beloved son. And I remember just hearing that going, man, if that's not the challenge of our life as human beings trying to walk with God, I don't know what is. All along the way, like so many of us, we've been crushed, we've been hurt. Maybe it's by church, maybe it's by its friend, by a friend who claimed the name of Jesus. Maybe it's been by your own circumstances, your own questions, your own confusion. But there's this thing that happens to so many of us along the way, and we begin to believe that maybe God could put up with us, maybe God could forgive us, maybe God could include us in heaven, but this idea that we're beloved children of God is so tough for us to get our minds around. And yet this is the audacious, not just claim, but invitation of the gospel for each and every one of us. And here's what I want you to hear as we kind of come into this next month together. I want you to understand that fundamentally, you are not just church attenders, that you're not just really good people that are trying really hard in hopes to do really good things for God. You are beloved sons and daughters of the Most High God, of the King of Kings, of the Lord of Lords, like he's your father. And the moment you begin to embrace that, everything shifts. And I love the way that the early ministry of Jesus kind of unfolds. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. But Jesus, who was fully God and fully human, which is a whole other story and tough to get our minds around, just kind of this audacious reality. He comes to earth on this rescue mission to reconcile all of God's lost children back into the family. 
And he shows up, and for 30 years, he kind of lives in obscurity. But when he's about 30 years old, he begins his earthly ministry. And I love one of the first things that he does is he starts welcoming these friends into his life. The scripture calls them disciples or followers. He starts welcoming them into his life. And Jesus starts just blowing their minds with the sorts of things he can do. These guys are like, man, we've never had a friend like Jesus. Jesus is healing the sick. He's forgiving the sinners. He's raising the dead. He's casting out demons. He's calming the storms. I love this one moment right after he calms the storms. The disciples look at Jesus and they go, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey this guy. They're like, nobody is like Jesus, which is the understatement of the century. And they look at him and, and one day they say, Jesus, there's something so different about you. And we're just asking, would you teach us how to connect with God the way that you do? Would you teach us how to pray the way that you do? Because the disciples are beginning to pick up on this reality that for whatever reason, when Jesus prayed, they'd seen a lot of people pray before. But when Jesus prayed, when he'd speak into the air, apparently somebody pretty powerful was listening. I don't know if you've ever had a friend like that before. Have you ever had one of those friends that when they pray, it's like God answers? And then when you pray, it's like silence. It's like, you know, sometimes you pray and it gets worse and you're like, I'm really bad at this, you know, but these guys are hanging out with Jesus and they're like, man, every time you pray, something happens. Jesus, would you teach us how to do what you do? And I love this moment because Jesus begins to teach them how to pray. And here's what I want you to understand as we wrestle with the Lord's prayer for the next month together. Jesus was not giving them a religious formula. He was not giving them a religious formula. For most of my life, when I heard the Lord's Prayer, what I saw, what I heard was a religious formula. I remember growing up in a church and I'd pray this prayer. It was always kind of meaningful to me. And then I got into high school and I went to a public high school. Shout out to all of you that went to public high school holding the fort down. Yeah, um, three of us have been corrupted, you know, by the system. But I remember going to public high school and I had this coach who was self-admittedly just a godless dude. I mean, just, just an absolute pagan in the truest sense but he was a superstitious pagan. And so, you know, in the midst of all of his like shenanigans and all of his sin, before every single game, because I was a pastor's kid, he would make me lead our team in the Lord's Prayer. And I'm like, dude, like, like since when do you believe in prayer? And like, can, can I pray something different? And he was always like, no. He's like, I don't know if somebody's out there, but if he is, I know this is a prayer he answer, so just stick to the script. And I mean, that was just kind of his, his view. Like, and so for, for a season in my life, every time I prayed the Lord's Prayer, I heard it as a religious formula. But I want you to understand, Jesus is, is in no way giving you, giving us, giving the disciples a religious formula. He's inviting us into a relational framework. And Jesus says, in order for you to understand the reason I have so much influence and authority and intimacy, the reason, uh, for, for any, the reason for you to understand that is you have to begin understanding who it is that I'm talking to because until you understand who it is that you're communicating with, you'll never understand who you are. And until you understand who you're talking to and who you are, Nothing else is gonna make sense. And so I love the way this begins to unfold. Look at Matthew chapter six, verses nine and 10 with me. Jesus says, this is how you connect with God. This is how you pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'll read that one more time. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in heaven. And so I love this moment. I wish we were sitting down at a coffee table tonight, just you know, just one-on-one, -on -one, because if we were sitting down in a discipling relationship, what I would do is I would I'd get out a piece of paper, I'd get out a napkin, and I'd say, hey, let's wrestle with the Lord's Prayer together. 
And I'd start by, by drawing this picture for you. We'll see if we can get technology to work. If you have a piece of paper or something, you can kind of follow along and you take a picture. Jesus says, what I'm inviting you into is this understanding that you don't just have this mysterious force up there that you're communicating with. Who you're communicating with is both your heavenly father and your king. And when you understand that, you begin to approach him not as a stranger, not as just some religious pilgrim. You begin to, to approach him, listen to this, as a beloved child. He says, and as you understand this, everything begins to shift. Now, this is an audacious claim. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Because the disciples, I don't think they had any framework for what it was that Jesus was getting ready to, to proclaim over their lives. They said, Jesus, how do we connect with uh, who you're connecting with the way that you do? And Jesus could have said, hey, here's the deal. Here's how you pray. Pray, hey, Jesus is Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Would you bless us because we're friends with Jesus? That's not how he teaches them to pray. He looks at him and says, here's how you pray. Our Father. And don't you know that there was someone in the crowd who went, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> How's he our father? And Jesus says, he's your father. He's our father because you're my friend. And just like that family I met a few years ago who all of a sudden, because of the friendship with the oldest son, this guy found himself in relationship with the new family. Jesus says, I'm putting something out there for you. He says, here's the deal. He says, when you begin to build your friendship with me, no longer do you relate to God as a stranger. No longer do you come to God as a beggar. He says, you come to God as a beloved son, as a beloved daughter, and you understand that your heavenly father is not just your father, but he's your king. And when you understand this, everything begins to shift. I wish we had hours. We could unpack what it means to be a beloved child. But I'm just gonna give you kind of a few things that begin to stick out to me. When you think about what it means to be a child, if you take notes, I just love this. I think it starts in this place of identity. It starts in this place of identity. When you begin to understand that you have a dad and you don't just have a dad, but your dad is the king of kings and the lord of lords, all of a sudden it begins to solidify this understanding of who you are because you know whose you are. And Jesus says, when this begins to, to, to become concrete in your mind no longer, are you so frustrated when you get fired from your job or dumped by your girlfriend or when you're not performing well in school? He says, because when your identity is anchored in something as big as the unshakable love of your father, the king, he says, all of a sudden you begin to know who you are and everything else feels more stable. It's an amazing reality when we begin to think about what happens when we start walking in our identity as beloved kids. I remember several weeks ago, our family was on vacation. And one morning, I was reading the story of Gideon because I'm a really good Christian. And so I was reading through the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. And I don't know if you know anything about the story of Gideon. But Gideon, in, in the natural realm, he was just a really ordinary guy. His dad was kind of a godless man. His dad wasn't royalty, they weren't rich. They were just kind of ordinary people, just sort of like most of us. But God shows up in Gideon's life and just begins speaking to Gideon, saying, hey, I've got more for you, I've got a purpose, I've got a plan. And so Gideon all of a sudden starts stepping into this incredible adventure with God. And God uses him to do great things. And there's this one moment towards the end of Gideon's life that, that I'd never noticed before. You get to Judges chapter eight, verse 18, and there's, there's this moment where Gideon has been chasing his enemies and he comes face to face with his enemies. And his enemies begin to taunt Gideon. They say, hey, Gideon, we've killed everybody. We're getting ready to kill you. And I love what Judges 8, verse 18 says. It'll be up on the screen. It's, <laughs> Gideon re re replies, he says, what kind of men were the ones that you killed at Tabor? Listen to this. So his enemies answered, they were just as you are. Each one resembled the son of a king. 
Now, I never noticed this before, but you have to think about this. Gideon, in the natural, he was a nobody. His dad was a nobody. He was a spiritual nobody. But somewhere along the way, as he started walking in his God-given purposes, he quit living in his biological family tree. He started living in his supernatural family tree. And all of a sudden, he began to live as the son of the king, and he didn't even know it. And here's what struck me as I read Judges 8, verse 18, because it's so many of our stories. Gideon's enemies had more clarity about his identity than Gideon did. They knew exactly who it was. They looked at him and they said, man, you're the son of the king. And it's the truth about so many of us. Your enemy, the devil, Satan, he has more clarity about your, about your identity than you do. And it's the reason he comes after you. It's the reason he wants to kill, to steal, to destroy, to ruin your life. Because even though you don't know who you are, he knows who you are. And he knows that you're a beloved daughter, a beloved son of the king. He knows that there's unlimited opportunity when you walk in the kingdom of God. And so he seeks to kill, to steal, to destroy. But here's what I love is Jesus says, if you want to know who you are, you have to know who it is that you're talking to. And who you're talking to is your dad. And he's not just your dad, he's the king, which means you are spiritual royalty. And it begins to settle this sense of identity. But it's not just identity, it's also this place of security. Of security. I love this, when you begin to realize that you have a dad, and not just a dad, but your dad is literally the most powerful being in all of the universe. <laughs> you all of a sudden start to feel pretty secure. You feel secure emotionally, relationally, physically, financially. The things that you used to worry about, you no longer worry about, you no longer fret over. I don't know if you can relate to this, but I remember when I was a kid, anytime my dad had to leave town for work, I would instantly start panicking. I'm like, oh man, somebody's gonna break in this weekend and murder us all. I don't know why I thought that. Like, I, just, I would just get terrified. I'm like, dad's gone, which is kind of hilarious because my dad is built about like me. He wasn't like some master in karate or anything. You know, he just, I don't know that he could have defended us from anybody, but when he was in the house, I felt secure, just like when his presence was there because when dad was home, I felt safe. I felt physically secure. I felt emotionally secure, like when dad was there. It's the reason some of you feel so insecure because you never had a dad around, right? I felt financially secure, which is also kind of crazy because we, we were in no way rich. But as a kid, I just never thought about like how I'd be taken care of because my dad, my dad was around. It's like with my kids now, I have three little boys. They're nine, seven, and four years old. And never one time have we been sitting at a restaurant and the bill comes and one of them reached for their wallet. Never even crossed their mind that they're gonna pay for it, you know? Like my, my four-year-old son, Judah, he's never come up to me and said, hey, dad, how are we gonna pay the mortgage this month? Have you thought about it? He doesn't even know what a mortgage is. It's never even crossed his mind that somebody pays for the house he lives in. Why? Because he's walking in intimacy with his dad. And his only known experience is that his dad loves him and that his dad takes care of him. And Jesus says, do you know who you are? More importantly, do you know who you're talking to? He's your dad, and he's not just your dad. He's your dad who's the king, and this brings with it all sorts of identity. It brings security. Another thing it brings is intimacy. Intimacy. You know he knows you. He loves you. He's relational. He's near. I love the language in verse 9 where he says, our father in the heavens for us, that seems like a far off distant place, but in the original language, it was literally their way of saying, he says, do you know your father is so close? He's closer than the air you breathe. He's all around you. <laughs> he's near, he, he's relational. He's not just a powerful king, he's, he's a relational father. He knows your wants, he knows your desires, he knows your dreams, he knows your heartaches, he knows your name. 
He knows your name. He knows how many hairs in your head or lack thereof. He knows everything about you. He's, he's a great dad and there's great intimacy there. One of the things that I love uh, about being a dad is that, man, when I come home at night, I just want to be near my kids. Like tonight I'll go home after preaching all day long and my, all my kids will be asleep. And it's my routine on Sundays. I, they have three beds in the same room, kind of triple bunk beds, uh, really cool looking. I built them. You can check them out sometime. But I, I'd go, I go in their room and I literally would just crawl in bed and just lay beside them. And I know it sounds weird. I just want to be near them. I just want to hear them breathe. When they come home from school, I want to hear about every crazy little thing that's going through their head. Why? Because <laughs> they matter to me, not because of what they do, but because they exist. And Jesus says, you can't know who you are until you know whose you are, who it is that you're talking to. He says, you have a father and your father's the king and this gives identity, this gives security, this gives intimacy, this also gives authority. It gives authority. I love this, this idea. When you begin to realize that you don't just have a spiritual dad, but your dad is the most powerful being in the whole world, man, it changes the way you see everything. I remember when I was in middle school, one of my best friends, his dad was the principal of our school. And this kid walked with an ungodly swagger. He's probably dis disrespectful at times, but he would call teachers by their first name. He'd walk into the teacher's lounge and eat their food. He just thought he ran the place. Why? Because of who his dad was. His authority wasn't based on his position. <laughs> his authority was based on who he was because of who his dad was. And I love this. Jesus looks out and he said, you gotta understand who you're talking to. You're talking to your father. You have an intimate relationship with him and there's security, there's identity, there's authority because he's the king. He's the king of kings, he's the lord of lords. There's identity, security, intimacy, authority. I'll just give you one more. We could go all night. There's purpose. He says, as the king... Here's the deal. He gets to call the shots in your life. And this, this just really flies in the face of what we think is true. A lot of you will spend your whole life, if you're not careful, giving God your, the blueprints for your life, begging him to bless them. And I love this. Jesus says, here's the deal. Not only is he your, your dad, but he's your king, which means he gets to call the shots. He gets to set the trajectory. But here's the beauti beautiful part about that. That means nobody else gets to set your life purpose. It means your broken family system doesn't set your purpose. Your boss doesn't set your purpose. Your, your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your husband or wife doesn't set your purpose. Who sets your purpose? Your father who knows you, who loves you, who's the king of kings, Lord of lords. And when you begin to walk in this reality, man, everything begins to shift. And I, go, I love this. You see this all through the life of Jesus. He lived in this tension. He came to his father. He came to his father with with relationship and with intimacy, but he also came to his father who is the king with humble submission and obedience. It's what you see, you remember the story in Mark chapter 14, where Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and he's getting ready to be arrested and sent to the cross. And it's one of the most beautiful moments where you see Jesus living in relationship with his dad, the king. He's, he's, praying, to, he's praying to God and he says, he says, daddy or dad, that's the word that's used there in the original language. He says, my father, he says, if it's cool with you, would you remove this cup? In other words, would you change the plans? And I love this because Jesus, he just models the reality, the audacity by which a son or daughter can talk to their parents. He says, this is how you talk to them. But at the end of the day, he didn't just approach him like his father. He approached him like his king. And he said, but not my will, but what? He said, your will be done. Not my will but yours will be done. And Jesus says, man, if you want to understand 
What's going on? This isn't a religious formula. It's a relational framework. And you've got to understand you're coming to your father, the king. Here's the reality. You know, it's easy to, to know this intellectually. It's kind of like my friend a few years ago who gets adopted into the family. And intellectually speaking, he knew that he was the son of this family that had brought him in. But man, it took forever for that reality to move from his head to his heart into his life. And it's possible for you to get the right answer on the test. You know, if somebody asks you tomorrow, who's God for you to go, well, God's father and he's king and this is what it means. But a lot of us, if, if we don't take the time to really recognize this, we spend our whole life understanding in our minds that he's father and king, but living as though he's not. And, and so what happens when you think one thing in your mind, but you experience something different in your heart? Uh, I want to just kind of point out a few places that we land. When you have a high view of God as king, but you have a low view of God as father, what you end up with is treating God like he's your boss and you're his employee. For some of you, this was your story growing up. You grew up in a, a really legalistic church where you're taught all the rules. You're taught, here's what you do to make God happy. Here's what you don't do to, to keep from making him mad. And without even meaning to, somewhere along the way, your relationship with God became nothing more than a transaction. And for a season, man, this felt so good. Why? Because you were taught that as long as you, you know the right facts about God and as long as you keep the right rules, he has to bless you. And somewhere along the way, it just became this transactional reality. You scratch God's back and he scratches yours. And for a season, it felt good, right? Because there was this kind of semi-illusion of control. But here's a challenge when you live kind of in this lower right-hand quadrant, when you see God as powerful, but you don't see him as relational. You spend your whole life working and serving and trying to live into the mission of God, but somewhere in the core of your heart, you're never convinced that you've done enough to make them like you. Remember years ago, Sydney and I had taken this couple out to eat dinner. We're sitting there uh, eating uh, this meal and we look across the table at this young couple and we asked the woman that was across the table, we said, if Jesus was here in person, what do you think he'd say to you? And I'll never forget this. It's just been burned in my brain. She said, I think he would tell me to just try harder. And I went, man, she spent her whole life in this environment where she learned that God was her king, but she was never taught that he was also her loving father. And so what she ended up doing was serving him with this white-knuckled determination like an employee serves her heavy-handed boss. For some of you, this has been your whole story. It's what happens when we don't really understand that he's our father, the king. Or for some of us, we kind of go to the other extreme. We kind of end up in the, the upper left-hand quadrant. It's where we have a high understanding of God as father, but a low understanding of God as king. In other words, we understand that he's relational, but we don't believe that he is authority. And when we're up here, we begin to treat God as though he is our equal. We begin to view God a lot like adult kids view their parents, you know, and so there's some love there. There's some respect there, but there's very little authority. We come to God kind of on our terms. We pick and choose what we want to follow. We, we pick and choose how we're going to lean in. When we live kind of in this upper hand, kind of, kind of upper left hand quadrant, we begin to treat God with kind of this, this, this sense of, okay, God, I'll pick and choose what I'll follow. I'll pick and choose the part of the scriptures that matter. And kind of in this way of life, we have a cheap view of grace where we do whatever we want to do because we believe Jesus will cover the bill, bill at the end of the day. We have a low view of morality, a low view of mission. And and the reality is when you live or try to live as equals with God for a season, it feels kind of good because you're comfortable with them. But when you're really honest with yourself, at the end of the day, it's still kind of miserable because down in your core, you're not sure that God's powerful enough to intervene in any of the things with which you need his help. 
And there's just this place that we sometimes live when we don't understand who it is that we're talking to. Sometimes like employees with a heavy-handed boss, sometimes like equals, you know, adult parents and their children. Or sometimes we have this low view of him as father and this low view of him as king, and we end up kind of living with this orphan spirit where we don't believe he's relational, we don't believe he's powerful. In other words, we believe that, man, there's somebody out there, maybe, but if there's somebody out there, we don't know who he or she is. We don't know if they love us. We don't know if they're coming to our rescue. And man, this is where so many of you live. I hear this all the time. Like, you know, you have a bad day at work and it's like, the universe is against me. And then you get that parking spot at Target and you're like, the universe is for me, you know? And, and it's just this like non-personal force and you, you pray into the air and you have no idea who's out there or if anybody's out there or if they care. But I love this. Jesus looks out and he says, hey, here's the deal. He says, you'll never know who you are until you know who you belong to and who you belong to as a father, the king. And I'm not giving you a religious formula. I'm giving you a relational framework for you to understand that you're not just an employee and you're not an equal and you're not an orphan. You're a beloved son. You're a beloved daughter. And when you live in that place, there's identity, there's security, there's intimacy, there's authority, and there's purpose. And when you begin to see that, everything changes. And it's this invitation, guys, to, to wake up and to come out of just kind of the cold cultural Christianity that says, hey, we show up at church, we try to keep the rules, we try to keep God happy, and we hope we give enough and serve enough and praise enough, and we hope we live moral enough lives. It's like, no, th there's this grand invitation to step all the way into the family because of your relationship with the oldest firstborn son of heaven, Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden you realize that everything that is true of God towards Jesus becomes true in you. And guys, there is, there is life changing power when we begin to live in this reality. But the reality is what we believe up here is sometimes very different than what we believe in here and what is experienced and lived out here. I experienced this uh, several months ago in a very real way. I taken my oldest son, Micah, who's nine years old. I was doing some work in California and so I took him with me for a little father-son trip. And uh, we had this day off where we were just gonna go do some, do some fun things together. And so I said, hey, let's, let's rent bikes and ride down to Venice Beach. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Venice Beach. I've been there several times. I'd never been there with a kid, and so it was a terrible parenting move. And so we show up, and I mean, it was just chaos. There's, you know, all sorts of public insanity from drug use and alcohol abuse and nudity and just crazy things happening. And the whole time, I'm trying to keep my nine-year-old's eyes on the ocean. I'm like, I'll get you counseling later, man. Just keep looking at the ocean, and we're just not going to pay attention to what's happening here. And I'll never forget, there's this one moment where this guy walks up to us, and just it, not trying to exaggerate from, I, I'm convinced that this guy was demon possessed. Just terrifying kind of experience. Scared my son, was kind of scaring everybody uh, around him. And uh, Micah said, man, what's going on with this guy? I said, I think he's possessed by a demon. We started having this conversation, my nine-year-old and I, and, and, and so we kind of get over to the side and we're praying and I'm trying to encourage him. And then we just walk down the beach and it's just kind of out of sight, out of mind. Well, two months go by, it takes us kind of to the middle of July. And we're on vacation visiting my family. And we're at the beach. And one morning, we're walking up from the ocean. And I'm with my oldest son, Micah, and my seven-year-old son, Jack. And we're walking up to grab something to drink. And Micah says, hey, Dad, do you remember that trip we took to California a few years ago? Or a few months ago? I said, yeah. He said, do you remember that time we went to Venice Beach? I said, yeah. What do you remember? <laughs> like, he said, do you remember the demon-possessed guy? I said, yeah, I remember. And this is the part that hit me. He said, Dad, he said, how come... 
you didn't help that guy out in the middle of his darkness. How come you didn't try to drive the demon out? And this is a question that just pierced me. He said, he said, I thought that's what guys like us were supposed to do. It's like, oh, and all of a sudden he and I began to have this, this conversation. I said, man, why, I didn't do it because I forgot who I was because I forgot whose we were. And, and I was, I was scared and I was faithless and I didn't want to be embarrassed and I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what to do. And that's just, just the truth of it. And, and I mean, he wasn't scarred. I don't think he has to go to counseling over it. He's like, oh, cool. I was just wondering. I didn't know. And, and, and but there's this, this moment where my son helped me see, man, there is, this, there is this chasm between what I think I think about God and what I actually believe about God. And here's the truth. You know, tomorrow, a lot of you could go out and we could pass out the test. Who's God? He's father. He's king. But Jesus, I'm convinced, has no interest in you filling out the right answer on the test. He wants you to experience the reality of what you think you actually believe. He wants you to experience in the core of your life what it means to be a beloved son, a beloved daughter, filled with identity and security and intimacy and authority and purpose, understanding that wherever you go, you're not just a church member. You're not just a moral person trying to perpetuate some doctrine. You are a son. You're a daughter of the living king, the Lord of lords, and you have authority to push back the darkness wherever you're at. In all the places where you live and work and play, it's like, man, there is more. <laughs> There's more of God for us. Just going, man, God, would you close the gap? Would you close the gap between what we think we think and what we actually think about who you are? And I don't know where you're at tonight. You know, my question for you is, is really pretty simple. How is it that you actually relate to God? Not how is it that you want to relate to God. Not how is it that you think you relate to God. How is it that you actually relate to God? Do you come to God as an employee with a boss, as an equal with a friend, as an orphan with some mystery? Or do you come anchored in identity, security, authority, intimacy, and purpose as a beloved child? Do you walk out of here on Sunday nights going, man, I know what God's put me here to do. I know who he's called me to be. In all the places where you live and work and play, man, you live with that sense of, man, this is what God's made me for. Or do you kind of sheepishly and timidly live as a church attender that's not trying to get crushed by culture? And I love this. Jesus says, man, there's more for you. He says, but you have to understand who it is that you're talking to. And here's the good news. If, if maybe you're like me tonight and you're going, man, I'm not where I want to be. Getting from where you are to where you want to be is not as difficult as we often make it out to be. I love John chapter one, verse 12. Look at this up on the screen. It's such a beautiful passage. It's talking about Jesus. It says, yet to all who receive him, and to all who believe in his name, he's given the right to become children of God. I love this. John says, hey, here's the deal. If you want to become children of God, you don't earn it. You don't strive for it. You don't petition for it. Just like that young man a few years ago in the family that I met, like he didn't show up looking for someone to adopt him when he was 17 years old. The only thing he did was build a genuine friendship with a firstborn son. And when he built a friendship, he got invited into the generosity of a family that he could never imagine. So tonight, if you're going, man, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I thought I was. What do you do? You go, okay, Jesus, would you help me to receive this absurd reality? <laughs> I mean, have you ever thought about how absurd this is that like you become a co-heir with Jesus? That there's not just a doctrine or a force, but there's this intimate relational father who is the all-powerful creator of the universe. 
who's your dad, the king, and he wants to walk in intimacy with you. And the only thing that you have to do to enter into that amazing reality is to just receive the gift of Jesus and to believe in his name. So all day long, I've just been asking the Lord, hey, Lord, would you help us receive? Would you help us believe? Would you help us receive? Would you help us believe? So that we walk as your beloved children with identity and security and intimacy and authority and purpose as we push back darkness in all the places where we live, work, and play. So here's a question that we're going to communion with. It'll be up on the screen. You can come back and you can sit down in a few moments. I'll send us a communion. But I want you to just kind of sit and process, man, how do I actually approach God? For those of you that are internal processors, you can grab a piece of bread and you can grab the cup and you can come back and reflect on your own. For those of you that think better as you talk out loud to somebody, get the bread and get the cup and come back and get in groups together and reflect together, discuss together, pray that Jesus, would you help you, help you to believe and to receive and to start walking in this new identity. And here's what I love as we take the communion, as we literally break the bread and take the cup, we're reminded the reason that we get to come into this family is why? Because we have submitted and surrendered to the friendship of Jesus, the Son of God. And that's it. So I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. We're going to go to communion. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about this together. And so I just invite you to close your eyes and repeat after me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.